Thanks for joining us for the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, deputy editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's new section on security and privacy in the digital age. We think the most important and most interesting part of the cybersecurity story is the people behind the keyboard. On the Cybersecurity Podcast, we'll interview key leaders and thinkers in the field, going beyond the headlines to talk about some of the most pressing trends and newest ideas. First, we'd like to thank Arizona State University for sponsoring this episode. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Katie Masuris. She's the chief policy officer for HackerOne, a San Francisco tech startup that connects companies with hackers who are looking to solve their cybersecurity problems. We talk about bug bounty programs and the debate over controversial changes to an arms export agreement. But first, we're joined by Siobhan Gorman. She's advising companies on privacy and cybersecurity issues for Brunswick Group, a global communications consultancy company. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I wanted to start our conversation by asking you to look back. You come into this new job having started out doing research at the Washington Post, then joining National Journal, where you covered really the beginning of what was then being called Homeland Security. And then you moved to Baltimore Sun, where you had the global but also local beat of intelligence and national security with Washington, D.C. and Fort Meade. And then at Wall Street Journal, where you broke countless stories in cybersecurity, data privacy, terrorism, intelligence, you name it. How have you seen the cybersecurity topic evolve over this period? Not just the importance of the issue, that's pretty obvious, but how people talk about cybersecurity. Well, I think the fact that people do talk about cybersecurity is the biggest evolution. I mean, you you gave quite a flattering rundown. Thank you. That's <laughs> but, how we're nice yeah, to our yeah, guests. I appreciate to that. Come on. Uh, but, uh, but I really started covering these issues around 2006, 2007, when I was at the Baltimore Sun, because the National Security Agency was right in our backyard, and that was a, a key part of our readership. So I started covering it probably through the most secretive agency that there exists, uh, perhaps on the planet, but certainly in the United States. And it was interesting because at that time, I was also covering a lot of counterterrorism as part of the sort of intelligence and national security beat. And it was easier to report out counterterrorism stories, covert counterterrorism operations, than it was even basic cybersecurity stories, because both governments and companies were so afraid of talking about the issue because they were just afraid of unintended consequences. It was a very nascent issue. And I think that was probably a combination of just sort of inherent interest in keeping things secret on the government side and, and even from the Companies' perspectives too, but also just a lack of knowing exactly where the issues were going to go. And so it evolved. When you say unintended mm-hmm. and, and where it goes, do you mean making them more of a target? Yes. Or- yeah, if, if you if you talk about these issues, all of a sudden you paint a target on your back, or maybe you seem unknowledgeable and someone feels that there's a vulnerability there. So I think that, that you know, certainly 2006, 2007, no one wanted to discuss it at all. Uh, even the comprehensive national cybersecurity is, uh, initiative that the government was working on was intensely secret. It was very hard to get uh, even confirmation that it was happening. And in fact, I remember learning that NSA was, was, was developing it in theory with the Department of Homeland Security, and yet when I was directed to the Department of Homeland Security to talk to uh, about it, they would acknowledge it not at all. So, well, so yeah. what role does journalism play in this? Do you think that there's more coverage of it today than there was when you first started? And how does that play a role in the fact that more people are starting to talk about it? I, I think it does play a role, and obviously I'm biased in, in answering it this way, but if you look at the evolution in the U.S. and maybe even compare it to Europe a little bit, what you saw was in sort of the kind of 2007 
2007 to 2010 period, journalists started pushing more and more, covering breach stories, whether it was government or companies. And around 2010... uh, What's pushing that? Is it editors saying, go out and give me this story, or they're coming across better things and then making the case to editors, hey, this is interesting? I think it was, uh, at least in my case, it was reporters making the case to editors. In fact, I spent the first year at the Wall Street Journal in 2008 or so trying to convince my editors that cybersecurity was worth writing about for a business audience. So there was a certain amount of journalists starting to learn about the issues, thinking it was interesting and finding new ways to tell the story, just finding ways to tell the story uh, without it just seeming like a lot of zeros and ones. So there was that piece of it. Um, But then you also had anonymous coming along in 2010. And all of a sudden, they stole lots of records and just put them up on the internet. And all of a sudden, the organizations that were victims of these attacks couldn't pretend that they weren't happening. And so it was, I think, a confluence of journalists pushing sort of greater public awareness and then just the inability to ignore it that kind of pushed it over over the line. Interestingly, uh, we we work with a lot of companies in Europe now as well, and there just isn't the same pressure, either uh, reporting requirements from the government or journalists pushing. And there is an impression in Europe that they don't really have breaches there uh, because they don't get publicly reported. What do you wish there was more coverage on now? I wish there was more coverage on destructive attacks. Uh, I think that we have seen this somewhat gradual evolution toward destructive cyber attacks that are probably, I think, the greatest concern, uh, certainly for the government, but it should be for companies as well. I mean, in 2012, we saw the Saudi Aramco attacks. We've seen some similar ones uh, in South Korea where, you know, hackers were able to get in and actually destroy data and paralyze computers. And then certainly we saw it with Sony. But in speaking with companies these days, I don't think that there is yet an awareness that it, you know that is kind of the direction, at least in, in from what I can tell, that's kind of the direction that these attacks are going. But it's interesting, too, because as much as journalists push, it's also a very sensitive issue on the part of companies. So um, now that you're on the, you know, the other side of this and you're talking more to companies as a consultant, I mean, what are some of the sensitivities about actually disclosing that there could have been, you know, a breach or, you know, whether it's a destructive attack or whether it's, you know, something that's more, um, you know, just a compromise of personal information? I think that there is still very much a feeling on the part of companies that the more they talk about cybersecurity, the more they paint a target on their back. I think that where the shift has come is that when... Do you think that's a true true way to take it? Is Is that the, you know... What would be your advice to them? Hey, this is right. You've made the proper assessment, or is it something else? Well, what 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 we try to talk about is sort of a new normal, where there's an understanding that companies will be breached and probably not judged publicly for that so much, or even by government regulators for that so much. What you are judged for is how you handle a breach and whether or not you start to take whether or not you took appropriate actions beforehand to at least do sort of basic security measures, and then what you do after. Afterwards, and whether or not you start taking stronger steps to make sure that at least those types of things don't happen again and try to anticipate to some degree uh, what the issues will be down the line. Well, it's interesting because you would have companies probably looking at Target and Sony and other high-profile, really embarrassing breaches. I mean, could you point to one example of a company that was breached and felt some of the reputational business challenges that came from that? A company just that might be seen as a warning to some of these other companies and he's looking and saying, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be on CNN, you know, having to answer for, for this. That could be And also think the other way. What are the positive yeah. stories yeah. that you point to clients and say, hey, 
this is a company that, that weathered the storm yeah, well. Yes, they survived. And you can, you know, if you be honest and transparent, then you can maybe get through this as well. The yeah. nightmare and the dream scenario. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, I think that two, and, and at the risk of now feeling a little bit dated, because these are both 2014 examples, uh, or two, yeah, 2014 examples, and we're in the process of actually updating some of our analyses. But um, one, one sort of compare and contrast uh, pairing is Target and Home Depot, just because Target, I think, really put kind of the hacking threat on the map for corporate leaders. Um, Sony followed up pretty well, but Target was really what got people's attention because initially, if you look at the news coverage, it was the, the initial coverage of the Target hack was pretty straightforward. There wasn't a lot about it that was all that critical. It was more once the company started changing its story, it put out a set of numbers of, I think it was 40 million records. And then all of a sudden, I think it was, you know, 70 or it went up to 110. And the, the issue was that they started to create the impression they changed their own narrative. It was working in their favor at the outset. And they changed it to one of mismanagement, which, you know, they followed up not only with multiple statements that were corrective, but also testimony on the Hill that was sort of in the same vein. And they sort of lost sight of their customers, even just basic steps. Like this was ha- this was a hack that happened on Black Friday. And they one, one thing that all companies do when they have one of these events is set up a bunch of call centers to have customers, a place for customers to call in. Target shut down its call centers at five o'clock on Black Friday. The banks uh, that manage credit cards for Target actually stayed open past that and through the weekend. And so customers were having a very different experience, even with their own banks compared to Target, which just reinforced an impression of they don't really have, um, you know, a, a focus on what matters and they're not managing it properly. Home Depot, you know, actually had not even that different a, a set of, of facts. And, and in fact, when their breach was disclosed, I think it was in September, I believe both of them were disclosed by Brian Krebs. When when the Home Depot one was disclosed, uh, the, the initial coverage was actually sort of assuming that it was going to go in the target direction. But what Home Depot did was have a very sort of tight focus. And I believe from a management perspective, it also had a much smaller team working on this. It had a very tight focus on the customer. And so you saw that it put up, you know, a, a, a microsite, uh, you know, web page where customers could go, where anybody could go. It updated information about what customers could do, but it didn't sit around admiring the problem all that much. And, you know, it put out information and then it actually had to put out corrective information again. Uh, the number of records that that were, were stolen, I think, doubled because one was one payment and one was email. But because of its sort of relentless focus on the customer, the narrative, if you look at the media narrative, it went from the assumption that it was going to be a, a management misstep to sort of management under control and they still steered through really well. So from that, I guess, what advice would you give companies handling a breach and disclosing it? Are there one or two things that you could point to that is, you know, the golden rule for, you know, breach announcements or disclosures? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say the the golden rule is, uh, two, two points would be, never disclose numbers at the outset unless you would stake your job on it. Uh, wait until the investigation is at a point where you're really confident in those numbers, not because it's good to withhold information, but you need to be conscious of the limits of of the information that you have at the outset. And the second would be focus on your customer. Just, you know, that is what companies are there for. And without customers, most companies would seek to exi- uh, cease to exist. So those are two good ones. It's funny you put the parallel of a year ago, we would have been talking, you know, these examples, but we've got new folks joining the uh, cybersecurity hall of shame and they're <laughs> on the government side. What's the advice you would give 
to the leadership at an agency like OPM, which has lost maybe not as many million records, but certainly more high-profile records and sensitive. Another way of framing this is, um, it, in many ways, you're, you're describing this as you know rebuilding trust or, or maintaining trust. What's the advice you give to government leaders when it comes to this trust question? I think it would be exactly the same as to companies because fundamentally it's an organizational leadership question. And the main thing that organizations struggle with in sort of uh, dealing with breaches is managing with confidence and competence and projecting that. And certainly we saw those lacking on the OPM side. I think that the agency has an opportunity with new leadership coming in. I think right now the, the deputy who has a, a background in management consulting uh, is, is probably, you know, at least well positioned to give it a good start, but to bring somebody in who will make a statement that these issues, that cybersecurity matters, some, someone maybe with a little bit of a technical background or at least a good management background that would apply in this in this area. And what you have so to- So was, what was lacking before? I mean, you, you've sort of focus. put one focus. So, you know, if you're looking at the statements they're making, what are ones you go, you know, before you had the golden rule, what are things that they were saying in OPM side that basically would be wrong. Well, they violated the golden rule. They said 4 million records. And <laughs> yeah. it was, oops, no, five times that. That's, I mean, yeah. that's it. And, and I'm I always th- struck by the idea that whatever the, the number is at the start, they pose it as if it's something small. And of course, you're both journalists. Whenever there's a million behind it, you can run with it. So whether it was Target going, oh no, it's just 30 million or OPM, it's just 4 million. Well, no, that's a big it's number. A if, even if it's 50,000, I can run with that as a story, let alone then blood's in the water when I go, oh, it's not 4 million now, right. it's but 20 million. Especially when you're checking every week, well, what's it at now? Is it, you know, 14 million? Is it 21 million? And then you have to, you know, that just also looks looks bad because it just looks like, you know, to your point earlier, like it's just increasing in scope and looks mismanaged increasingly every week. Yeah. And it, and it conveys just a lack of understanding of how these things work. I mean, anybody who knows, you know, how forensics investigations work in cybersecurity, I mean, you're going to you're going to do an initial assessment and then you're going to really look into it and you almost always find that the hackers got things uh, or information or got into parts of systems that you didn't initially realize. So, I think one thing that I've noticed uh, and has been surprising going from the the sort of journalist perspective to the business perspective is how eager companies actually are to put information out in the public at the outset, once they feel like they're they're obligated to disclose publicly. Uh, as a journalist, my presumption was always companies never want to tell you anything. Uh, no organization that has, you know, information that they would rather not see out there publicly really is going to do so voluntarily. Well, companies actually often think that, well, okay, now that we, we have to acknowledge it, let's just put it out there, kind of rip the Band-Aid off. And what we find ourselves counseling companies oftentimes is just, again, it's the question, well, would you, sh- would you stake your job on those facts? Because Otherwise, you put out what you know is accurate and you say, we're investigating and we'll we'll let you know later. Um, so for OPM, I mean, they have the opportunity to sort of make it a turnaround story, right? You bring a new person in, you, you know, do a major cybersecurity program, something other than, you know, you have 30 days to figure out what's going on in cybersecurity, but something that's really like, you know, a, a one or two year sustained game Do you game mean plan. that cybersecurity is a marathon, not a sprint? You could say to that. You could say that. <laughs> It's whatever it is, it requires sustained uh, interest and and focus. And I think that what happens uh, almost naturally in government and in lots of organizations is that you'll have a big press uh, because there's there's pressure either from on high or from the outside or Congress or something. And then people just lose sight of it over time. And as 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 you guys know better than anybody, I mean, 
vulnerabilities creep in over and over again, and you've got to be updated. Yeah. And journalists move on to the next breach that comes up as well. I mean, so for other agencies, would you say that the resignation of Catherine Archuleta, the OPM chief, is going to be a wake-up call, or is this going to be counterproductive? You know, if you come out and you are answering to the, you know, the repercussions of being breached, then you just might get axed. I mean, what do you, where do you think that that is going to fall? Well, I don't even know if those are mutually exclusive, but I do think that I think it it is a bit of a, a warning to other agencies. At the same time, there is uh, always some inclination to say, well, that was their issue. My issue is different. I think that there's still a lack of understanding both in government and in companies that Almost everybody's job these days is dependent on data. One thing that we uh, often tell companies uh, as we sort of explain these issues is every company is a data company. Well, you could say sort of the equivalent would be true in in government. Um, every government agency uh, relies so much more on data than, than it ever has. Uh, so I would hope that government leaders would take the lesson that they need to really mind their data. Uh, however, it could also have the impact of discouraging people from being forthright about it. But one could also argue OPM wasn't forthright about it. There was some reporting around the the notion of they're trying to, to display this whole hacking episode or episodes as sort of discrete things to try to minimize it. And anytime a leader finds himself in the situation of appearing to minimize a problem, it's over. Well, thank you very much for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Hacker One's Katie Mosaurus. But first, a word from our sponsor. In 2015, U.S. News and World Report ranked Arizona State University as, quote, the second most innovative university in the nation. That innovation is clear in ASU's approach to real-world challenges like cybersecurity. As part of the university's global security initiative, the ASU Center for Cybersecurity and Digital Forensics approaches the, quote, wicked problems of cybersecurity by bringing together collaborative research teams of world-renowned experts across academic disciplines to design solutions for industry and government. One wicked problem the center is also indirectly addressing is the gender imbalance in the cybersecurity workforce. Here's Jamie Winterton, Director of Strategic Research at ASU's Cybersecurity Center, and Nadia Bliss, Director of ASU's Global Security Initiative, discussing women in cybersecurity. This angry white guy in a hoodie trope really bothers me, and I think it's highly <laughs> detrimental. Um, there are really some spectacular women in information security right now, like Michelle Dennity from McAfee or Susan Kosky from Aetna or Katie Masaurus from Hacker One. Like These women are out there. For some reason, we're ignoring them and choosing to focus on young males with bad facial hair stooped over keyboards. The more we have this conversation and the more we can highlight the diversity, the more we can get away from this sort of mean boys club perception. It's It doesn't help women want to join. In my family, you know, one grandmother was in the IT area before it was even called IT. The other grandmother was a, a neurologist. My mom was an engineer. So I never thought that it was weird. And when I was actually working at Lincoln Laboratory, people were like, how did you get? And I'm like, well, I just liked it. And I never considered that it was odd. <laughs> so I think reduction of the emphasis on the oddness of women in these fields brought together with more role models, um, I think, would increase participation of women and um, other minorities uh, in these areas. Find ASU's Global Security Initiative online at globalsecurity.asu.edu. 
Up next, we have our interview with Katie Masouris. In addition to being a New America Cybersecurity Fellow, she's Chief Policy Officer at HackerOne. It's a San Francisco tech startup connecting companies and hackers looking to solve cybersecurity problems. They work with companies to coordinate vulnerability response, and they provide the platforms for structured bounty programs to encourage hackers to report any bugs they see to companies. She's former Microsoft, an ex-hacker, and current badass. Katie, with that introduction, (laughs) thanks for joining us. We appreciate you coming on. I definitely appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. So let's start with your work at HackerOne. Walk us through the business model and how it came about. Well, HackerOne started as a result of folks from Google and Facebook and Microsoft coming together and taking what we learned about vulnerability coordination and disclosure and running bounty programs and wanting to create a platform that would allow anyone to do vulnerability disclosure, which can be a complicated process, allow them to do it in a lot more smooth and coordinated fashion, and then make bounty payments really easy. So we've got customers like Yahoo and Twitter and Square who will pay security researchers who come forward with with vulnerability information, and then we charge a service charge uh, to those companies. Those who do not pay bounties and just use our platform for vulnerability disclosure get to use it for free. So how have companies' attitudes towards bug bounty programs changed over the years? I mean, from that list, it seems like many are pretty open and accepting of it. Well, we're at the beginning of what I would call the uh, defensive incentive economy. So, you know, there were a few companies like pioneer companies like Netscape that started paying bug bounties for security bugs way back in the 90s. And then we saw a steady progression of more and more companies adopting this way of rewarding security researchers who came forward. Um, 2010, we saw Google enter the bug bounty market. And then, of course, Microsoft came in with the Microsoft Mitigation Bypass Bounty and IE11 uh, Beta Bug Bounty and the bonus for defense back in 2013 when I was still there. And so for the hackers, is it all about the bounty or is there a recognition component that goes along with this as an incentive? Well, you're absolutely right in terms of there are many different incentives that people that people do their work for. I mean, every person has has sort of a mix of motivations and compensation is part of that, but recognition and what I call the pursuit of intellectual happiness plays a big part in hackers' motivations and really any of our motivations. So along those lines of recognition, we've recently seen in the news a number of incidents that some are calling stunt hacking. An example of this would be the hacking of a Jeep Cherokee with a reporter inside it while it was driving down a highway. What's your take on this phenomena and not just you know why it's happening, but is it ethical or not? Should it happen or not? Well, you know, certainly the advent of people trying to get attention of the general public and of vendors has been going on in one manner or fashion for a very long time. Before it used to be dropping dropping zero days to you know full details on the full disclosure mailing list, and that was one way to get companies and customers to pay attention. We then saw the advent of logos, uh, marketing schemes going along with vulnerability disclosures like Heartbleed, and now we're seeing some things bleed into the physical world. And I think it's definitely something that got some attention. The patch had been available from the manufacturer, but nobody really knew about it. And what what I think the interesting question is, how do we get companies and consumers to pay attention to security issues without doing excessive stunt hacking and things generated to, to get a lot of attention? How do we make it a mundane practice for people to protect themselves, especially when there's actually a patch available? To me, that is a much more interesting question, and it's something we've been dealing with in the security industry for decades. So how do you do that? 
Well, unfortunately, you know, a big attention-getting media events are usually the way it happens. I think ultimately, you know, we don't necessarily have a zero-day problem in this industry. We have a patch deployment problem and a patch uptake problem. And so, you know, would the car manufacturer have done a recall if this hadn't happened? And I'm not saying it's right. But the question for us to ask is how do we make it so that it doesn't require a big media stunt to have these updates applied to software wherever it's running, whether it's running in a device like an automobile or a pacemaker or any place where it could have impact to life and human safety. Where is the line between stunt and just stunt versus useful hacking, drawing attention? Because clearly there's some line. We can't say that everything fills us. So for you, where do you see that line between the two? Well, I mean, like I said, I think it did get a lot of attention. You know, what's interesting is that stunt hacking of cars, especially by these two gentlemen that I know, have occurred in the past, but just not at that level. And so if the stunt hacking occurred in the past where they were showing these vulnerabilities were possible, but they just didn't, didn't take it that extra step, why did it take going to that extreme and putting the public, you know, at risk without their consent? Why did it take that to get the attention of national media to this extent? That's the question that I really want to ask because they've done the stunt hacking of the automobiles in the past and it still didn't generate nearly this much national and international media attention. And it certainly didn't generate recalls of vehicles. So as part of that on the business side, too, I mean, are, what role are companies playing in the fact that they haven't necessarily acknowledged that this could be a real issue or been proactive in the way that they treat this? Well, that the company in question did provide a patch. They had a patch mm-hmm. ready. So they, you know, that's why I'm saying, you know, even if a manufacturer creates a patch, how do you get the consumers to deal with it? And I think it's a complex ecosystem where we have these physical devices in the world. I mean, your mobile phone is an example of this. You've got a physical device in the world that depends on sort of a software and hardware supply chain for its end security of the device. A car is no different. They've got the the manufactured parts, but they've also got who's going to absorb the cost of applying those patches. Will it be the individual dealers? Will it be, you know, the automobile manufacturers? Will they compensate the dealers for their time and labor? So there are all these ecosystem questions about who absorbs the cost of having to service software when it's in a physical device that is out of your hands. And, you know, Microsoft had to deal with this patching problem in terms of creating Windows Update, and that was the universal mechanism by which they applied patches. Right now, we don't have any of those universal mechanisms over-the-air updates where everybody knows what the norm is supposed to be for all these other industries, like automobiles, like medical devices, like all of these other industries in, in the Internet of Things that is coming up, where there are no norms for how you're supposed to get those patches to the end consumer. So let's shift to something that's been a pretty hot topic for you, and that's the controversial proposed changes to the Vassanar arrangement. That's a 41-country arms control pact, and now the U.S. government is essentially trying to put in place export restrictions classifying certain cybersecurity technology as weapons. And the goal is to limit the overseas sale of spyware, especially to oppressive regimes, but security and human rights experts have some pretty loud objections. So what 
has everybody up in arms. Sorry, couldn't resist that pun. Well, I, I do love a good pun, um, but I think... That wasn't a good pun. I, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I love a good pun. Um, so Thanks, I guys. think I think that, um, one, you know, the goal of adding surveillance software and intrusion software to the Wassenaar arrangement was a noble goal. This, this goal was originally to protect human rights, where a lot of these, you know, folks in different countries were targeted by the surveillance software that's sold by companies. And as a result, they were incarcerated, beaten, tortured, even killed. And the fact that that is a noble goal. Now, how this goal is being enacted with an export control on software, that's where we run into the problem. So it's just been written far too broadly, and it actually encompasses a lot of defense technology or even offense technology that defenders need to test their own networks. So it's really way too broad, and it's kind of a dragnet that pulls a lot of software in that's unintended. So what does it mean potentially for companies like yours? What is the the marketplace for legitimate analysis of computer security weaknesses look like if this moves through? Well, it actually has the potential to affect not just startup companies like mine, but some of the biggest companies in the world would suffer undue licensing burden. One of the considerations here is that if you employ foreign nationals inside your own company, you might have to apply for export licenses just to talk to your neighbor down the hall who happens to be a citizen of India or some of the other countries that are outside of this agreement. So it would really impede defenders at a fundamental level, even in their day-to-day activities. A company like mine, HackerOne, is part of what I would call a burgeoning defense incentive market. And that's where bug bounties come in. That's where providing monetary incentives for hackers so that they don't have to choose between doing the right thing and contributing to defense of the Internet and getting paid. And this market has just begun. I think this would have a huge detrimental effect to this growing market. And so what kind of consequences could this have for the um for technical innovation, or and what kind of um, advantages or disadvantages could it create for U.S. businesses? Those are great questions, especially about uh, specifically the U.S. proposed language. I think that what it comes down to with the United States proposal, as opposed to you know the U.K. and European Union um, manifestations of of this agreement, is that the U.S. handles its export controls in a much more restrictive way than other countries. So the potential for greater impact to American companies as a result of enforcing this is huge. So impact to American businesses, impact to American technologists is very, very large. I think that potentially, you know, we're going to have to go back to the 41 countries that agreed to this and have them take a good hard look at what the ramifications are to defense as a whole. So what has the Commerce Department's response been to these various voices? Well, the Department of Commerce, um, you know, in the U.S. has actually solicited for comments, and the comment period just ended on the 20th of July. They have been very open to accepting comments from the security research, independent research community, academic research community, and several businesses um, that are affected by this. However, they are not the only department in the government who's interested in this. And I think where we were really seeing some tension manifest are other departments that are you are looking at 
this as a useful tool for law enforcement and for— Name names. Don't yeah. just say other departments. <laughs> other departments. Okay. So like the State Department, like the NSA, um, and I think Department of Defense. And I think that in their estimation, uh, they think that there are probably exceptions that could be built into the existing proposed rule that will solve all the problems of defense and industry. However, I would say that if all the exceptions that are needed to protect defense are put in place, you're no longer regulating anything. So let's back up to, um, so when you say State Department and NSA, I mean, what, how does this affect them? I mean, this seems like something that could be, you talk about the industry effects, but for what about for foreign policy and, you know, their engagement with other nations? Well, I mean, you want to protect national security, right? That's part of what all these government agencies are tasked with as, as among their charters. And so, as they are thinking about this kind of software, um, they're thinking about it in terms of wanting to keep U.S. companies from exporting this software to countries that wish to harm us. So that's part of their charter. However, they're not really grasping the fact that the language in, its, in and of itself is too broad. And even with some of the exceptions and carve-outs that have been proposed, you're going to end up with a toothless regulation. And so I find it interesting that human and digital rights organizations are also getting involved in this. And you'd think on the one hand, you know, nobody would want to see this uh, type of spyware in, you know, actual spyware in the hands of oppressive regimes. And you talk about the noble goal of this type of proposal. But, you know, they also talk about having a chilling effect on fundamental academic research and free speech and things like that. Can you talk about the role that they're playing in this debate and if, if there's any part of this that is surprising to you? There are no surprises in any of this for me, unfortunately. Maybe I'm jaded or I've been in D.C. for exactly 24 hours too long. I don't know. But um, <laughs> I think I think that, that for me, um, when you see so many disparate groups come together on the same side and come again, you know, come together on the same side against this proposal, you see former director of, you know, former director of policy for Department of Homeland Security, um, Stuart Baker, who was on the opposite side in the crypto wars. He, you see him stepping out and, and speaking out against this. You see the EFF on the same side as that person. You see large mega corporations down to small startups. And you even see the hackers all on the same side. You know that there's something that needs to be done about this. That, that to me, speaks volumes as to how deep the problems in this proposed regulation go. So... You joked that, you know, we're taping this in D.C., but one of the key things in D.C. is that we're able to make bold statements and predictions with utterly no consequences. <laughs> so where do you see this ending up, given the dynamics that are at play right now? You know, how does this story end, so to speak? Well, I can tell you I would rather it didn't end the same way the crypto wars ended, which is bad regulation getting passed and decreasing the security of the internet as a whole and causing years of recovery before that bad regulation was reversed. So I don't want to see that outcome. I hope that we've learned from the crypto wars. I hope that we've learned to work together as an industry with, with the government agencies who are trying to do something noble, but are ham-handed in the implementation. So 
if I were to make a prediction, I would say, number one, we do need to be helpful to these organizations that have opened their doors and opened their ears to us uh, in the industry. We need to provide them with useful suggestions in how to achieve their goals. And we also need a seat at the table when it comes time to go back to those 41 countries, which I think, honestly, that's inevitable. That is inevitable, whether it's this year, next year, et cetera. We do need to go back and revisit this. And the right technologists need to be in the room, not just the ones they took advice from in the first place who thought they were narrowly defining what what they were targeting in terms of this regulation. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Katie. And thanks again to Siobhan Gorman for a great conversation. And again to Arizona State University for sponsoring this episode. And join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. Be sure to subscribe to us on New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasscode.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines. Talk to you in a month. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score, and Cold Killa. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.